the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. So, let's take a quick shout-out to thank some of the local businesses that make this program possible, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a full-service grocery store, and it's locally owned. It's just west of downtown. The cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some distanced dining tables, and you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. Check it out, folks. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. I'd also like to thank uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. On today's program... Uh, we're going to welcome uh, Dr. Holding to the show to talk about um, Trump. She voted for Trump. I didn't. We're going to try to talk about common ground. We'll also be talking with Dr. Mark Allen Derry about the coronavirus vaccine rollout. And um, we'll be talking with Kathy Burns about the National Screen Free Week. Why wait till May? But first, I'm going to read to you from... Marcher Walker Pilgrim, a reflection about the marches, a passage through northern New Mexico back in 2014. It was an amazing experience. Here it is. Our itinerary during the final push through New Mexico reads like a field trip for a course in comparative religions. On May 19, we pitch our tents at Santuario de Chamayo, one of the most prominent Catholic pilgrimage sites in the country. Most of the center's 300,000 annual pilgrims arrive by car or bus, but an impressive number make the journey on foot. There are annual pilgrimages of 100 miles from within New Mexico, a longer trek of 360 miles, Camino del Norte a Chimayo, starts in Denver. Presently, one woman is en route to Chimayo from Illinois, over 1,200 miles away. Chimayo's website could just as well refer to climate marchers, describing pilgrims who experienced hot, dusty, sweaty, confused, and exhausting days. Today, two apparently confused marchers bathe naked in the stream running by the main parking lot. When I find out about it, I want to scream, skinny dipping, really? At a Catholic retreat center kind enough to give us a place to stay? What the hell were you thinking? Fortunately, the matter was addressed by calmer heads earlier in the day with no backlash from the center's staff. A stone statue of a wandering pilgrim sits prominently in the heart of Chimayo. Looks a lot like you, says Steve as he insists on a photo, directing me where to stand and how to pose. The statue and I both sport wide-brimmed hats, satchels, and walking sticks. In his free hand, the pilgrim holds rosary beads. Mine clutches a cell phone. I admire the pilgrim's composure and purpose. The relative simplicity of his journey is enviable. Walk, pray, eat, sleep. Yeah, I guess we look a lot alike, I tell Steve. But he's a pilgrim. I'm a marcher. When you're out to save your own soul, a pilgrimage is great. When your mission is to save a planet, you march. The next day, Steve, Shira, Tony, and I set out before sunrise. 
We skipped breakfast on the promise of a cafe in Truchis, nine miles away, and a 2,000-foot climb. The ascent is difficult but beautiful, our path framed by snow-capped peaks. We passed a tiny hamlet nestled in an emerald valley far below. The intense quilted shades of green remind me of springtime in Iowa, and I'm drawn to the valley's lushness like a bug to a blue light. We are beyond famished as we close in on Truchis. Steve has developed this amusing habit of announcing, I smell bacon, when we approach a town. As we pass the first house on the edge of Truchis, he loudly declares, I smell bacon, then glances at me, scowls a bit, and says, There'd better be bacon. Yeah, yeah, I reply. It's a big town, bigger than Chimayo, which had a great restaurant. I promise you bacon, bacon and more. At the next house, a woman is just stepping out to the edge of the road to put up a sign advertising her art gallery. Excuse me, ma'am, I inquire. Can you tell us how to get to the cafe? She laughs and says, sorry, but there's no cafe in Truchis. Steve sighs a long, sad sigh that only a man who has sustained himself with visions of a hearty breakfast while trudging for three hours up a mountain can sigh. Undaunted, I ask, I guess we'll have to settle for the convenience store. Can you tell us where that is? We don't have a convenience store either, she replies. Steve's head droops, hat covering his eyes, and I fear he'll collapse and die on the spot, but not before strangling me. Tell you what, the woman says. Come in and I'll make you breakfast. The woman's name is Trish Booth. She and her husband, Leonardo, live behind their art gallery. They offer us stools around a large wooden table in the middle of the kitchen. Trish prepares a hearty breakfast of eggs, toast, hash browns, coffee, and tea, everything but bacon. We eat as politely as our ravenous appetites allow and discuss politics, climate, art, and human kindness. This is one of those unanticipated moments when I'm reminded of the essential goodness of people. After an hour of food and conversation, we visit the art gallery before striking out on the final six miles, mostly downhill. Trish and Leonardo later round up some friends and join us for supper and music at our campsite in the Santa Fe National Forest. This, too, is why we march. The following day, we camp at Southern Methodist University Retreat Center, where I witness the most astounding display of hummingbirds. Twenty or thirty hummers hover around a half dozen feeders. I walk right up to them, and they're not the least bit intimidated, buzzing just inches from my face. As I often do, I pitch my tent away from the main encampment, finding a beautiful spot next to a lively stream that promises to sing me to sleep. Around 10 o'clock, I crawl into my sleeping bag and check the forecast. I'm disheartened by warnings of heavy thunderstorms and flash flooding. It's too late to relocate my tent in the pitch-black mountain night, so I pack my gear and place it next to the tent door where I intend to grab it and flee if the waters suddenly rise. They don't, but my mind is on high alert all night. Sleep comes intermittently. Several times I awake from dreams where I'm holding my phone in an outstretched arm, struggling to keep it and my head from going under as a cold torrent of water rushes into my tent. The next morning we march into Taos in a downpour. A new marcher joins us, Faith Meckley. 
Faith is fighting to protect Seneca Lake in upstate New York from fracking. She plans to walk the rest of the way to Washington, D.C. Dozens of locals join us as well. At our rally, Lawrence Lujan, Lieutenant Governor of the Taos Pueblo, blesses us, and Woman Stands Shining of the Diné tribe speaks about the urgency of our mission. Faith writes in her blog, Woman Stands Shining told us how people on pilgrimage journeys always bring rain with them. She said we are pilgrims and that our walk is a prayer, so it's no surprise we brought the rain. All across New Mexico, Native peoples have welcomed us, guided us, fed us, sheltered us, and thanked us for what we're doing. Woman Stands Shining is not the first Native leader to call us pilgrims, to credit us with bringing rain to a region suffering intense drought and unprecedented wildfires. Did we bring rain to Taos? On the very first day of the march, were the heavy rains that ended Southern California's prolonged drought a result of our efforts? My rational mind refuses to believe there's a connection, yet this I know, whether we're pilgrims or marchers, whether we bring rain or simply coincidental travelers caught in the storm, a whole lot of people are thinking and talking about climate change because of our efforts. This, more than anything, is why we march. In Taos, we stay at the Hindu Hanuman Temple, where a flat open field provides an ideal campsite. But the marchers who unload the gear truck leave much of our equipment sitting out in the rain. Other marchers arrive to find tents, sleeping bags, and clothing sopping wet. My accordion is among the victims. I'm incensed, yell at Sarah and anyone else I think might have been responsible, and storm off. I'm losing my temper way too often. Later, I find Sarah and apologize. Meanwhile, Tony patiently disassembles my accordion and dries it in front of a wood stove inside the temple. Marchers with wet gear are given homestays. Tomorrow is a rest day, and we'll have ample time to dry our gear. Many marchers attend the prayer services at the temple. I'm too busy being pissed off and feeling oppressed by a heavy workload. In my world, as both marcher and director, a day off is about as real as the Easter Bunny. On our way north from Taos, we stop at the New Buffalo Center, a community founded over 40 years ago by hippies. Many still live here, even as they near the last decade of their countercultural lives. In one of the kindest, most humbling gestures we received during the march, New Buffalo residents wash and massage our feet. After a bountiful lunch, we gather in the center's sanctuary, where each marcher is blessed during a solemn New Age ceremony. We stay that night at Taos Goji Eco Lodge, owned by Eric and Elizabeth Vomdorp. After supper, as the sun retreats into the western sky, I walk down the road to thank our hosts. I find Eric corralling sheep and goats into the barn and chickens into the coop. We talk as he finishes his evening chores. We're the only large-scale goji berry farm in the U.S., explains Eric, but we're also a pretty famous tourist destination. I'm fascinated by innovative farming operations. Eric obliges me with a quick Goji Berry 101 tutorial, but he's more eager to tell me about the lodging side of their business. Some of these cabins were built over 100 years ago, and they've seen some pretty famous people. Aldous Huxley came here to write. In his spare time, he built an outhouse that still serves its purpose. Wow, I respond. 
I wonder what Huxley would have thought of our eco-commodes. Eric and Elizabeth have given Sarah permission to bury our humanure on their farm. I want to make a quip about Huxley's shit and our shit nurturing the same trees, but opt for discretion. D.H. Lawrence, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and Ram Dass all spent time here too, continues Eric. Good to know, I say. If I ever decide to write a book about this march and need to escape the din of Des Moines, I know where to come. Walking back to camp on a night so dark I could barely make out my hand at arm's length, I hear harp music coming from our big tent. I'm sure it's a recording, yet as I draw closer, I realize it's live. I squeeze into the crowded tent where a man in his 30s plays a small harp. His wife and two children sit next to him. A lantern bathes the scene in a primal glow, illuminating the unwashed faces of marchers crammed tightly together, all very intent on the music. Of all the spiritual encounters we've had this past week in New Mexico, this moment feels the most profound. As I soak in the ambiance, I feel as if we're a camp of gypsies and a traveling minstrel has arrived to barter music for food, trinkets, and a place to sleep. There's a rawness to the man's music. I'm reminded that the harp was inspired by the bow, a weapon to kill food to nurture the body, transformed into an instrument to make music to nurture the soul. And that's the story, folks. Um, after that, we moved on to Colorado. Hey, we'll be back in a minute here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, uh, thanks to our nonprofit partners, uh, Bold Iowa, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful, nonviolent means to, to push for change. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Support also provided by Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents, and you can learn more at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, welcome back to the program. So uh, as some of you may know, I've set an ambitious um, agenda for myself and for this program over the course of uh, 2021, my intent is to have a conversation every week with 
someone in Iowa who voted for Donald Trump. And part of my concern is uh, there's this um, rhetoric on the left that tries to say that all Trump voters are bad people, um, misogynist, racist, stupid. Um, Hillary Clinton said that half of them were deplorable. That didn't help any. Uh, you know, so part of this is to dispel those myths. Part of it is to try to identify our common ground uh, and also to understand why so few rural and blue collar voters now vote Democrat. And finally, I, I want to dialogue with people about bipartisan solutions to climate change, which is an existential threat that's not going away. So the first victim, I mean friend, I mean uh, <laughs> first person to join me for this conversation is Kim Holding. Kim and I go way back. Hello, Kim. How are you? Hey, hey, Ed. How are you doing? Good. Kim is a, a veterinarian. She operates the Story County Veterinary Clinic, and um, she's also been involved with, um, you know, been been a been a, a supporter of this program. So I appreciate that. We go way back. We go back to um, the days sometime in the 1990s, I think, when we were. Uh, you called me about a housing division, subdivision that somebody wanted to build next to you, and you thought it was a bad idea, and so did I, and so did your neighbors. I think the only person who thought it was a good idea was the guy who wanted to build it, <laughs> and uh, we were able to stop that from happening, and we've been, uh, we've been, we've been dialoguing ever since, but, you know, we, we don't always dialogue about the content of this, this, uh, this program, and that is, again, what are the differences, and what can we do to address them, and what can we do to find common ground, uh, so, Kim, you voted for uh, Donald Trump. I did. Uh, in 2016 as well as 2020, I believe. Well, I didn't so much vote for Donald Trump as I voted against what the Democrats gave me for a choice. Uh, so it was more of a vote against Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton? Yes. I'm curious, between those two bad options, in your opinion, uh, which, um, which, uh, which one did you feel was a, a worse choice? Well, I think Hillary, I guess my concern was she was so uh, determined to get power that there were concerns in my mind at where she would stop um, to get that power. Um, you know, so I, I had some major concerns with her and her candidacy. And uh, looking at Donald Trump, I mean, you've had a chance to see him for four years, beginning, you know, back in 2016 when he was first president, and between then and now, has your opinion of him changed much? And if so, how? Um, I think he's done a lot of good things. I think um, I was a little less happy with his rhetoric the last few months than what we had seen in the first time he ran. Um, the first time we needed somebody who wasn't part of the machine and wasn't part of the establishment um, politically, which he was not. Um, but I'm not sure that we didn't need something different in this last election. Um, and time will tell whether or not we're ever going to get that. But so when you say different, would you rather have seen a different Republican candidate than Donald Trump? Um, no, not, not necessarily different. I think his message could have been packaged differently. Ah, a different message, gotcha. He got elected the first term being kind of, you know, not of either group, 
Um, and then the second term, it, it just seemed like he kind of went on with the same rhetoric and maybe, you know, maybe it should have just been packaged differently. Now, you are, you are not a lifelong Republican. I, I, I know this. So you um, you uh, were a Democrat most of your life, correct? Right. In fact, I think you told me you, uh, you came from a union background. Yes, um, my grandfather was involved in a union. Both my grandfathers were involved in, in union printing shops. Um, my dad worked several union jobs. My mom worked several union jobs. I worked union jobs in high school. Um, so, I mean, we've long been union supporters and recognized, you know, the need and the importance of unions in protecting workers' rights and, and you know, when we've seen CEO pay go from you know, relatively small to obscene amounts of money, as we've also seen that the, the union, you know, young people didn't realize the importance or recognize the importance until they've not supported them. And so now as the unions have sort of fallen by the wayside, we've seen, you know, a lot more problems with um, the employment and the worker situation. Now, now, those are two things that you and I agree on, and I think you and maybe a lot of Democrats would agree on. Is uh, a fair, you know, a fair structure, fair wages, a, a fair system for for union members, for working people, uh, and also you mentioned concern about uh, CEO salaries and compensation packages going through the roof. Uh, you and I have, you uh -huh. and I share those concerns. Uh, and how do you feel either the Dem how do you feel both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, generally speaking, address those concerns? I think. I don't know that either side at this point is is addressing those concerns. I think they're all kind of just trying to pretend it's going to go away. And do you see maybe more more hope from the Republicans in terms of addressing those, or or just nothing nothing to be excited about on either side of the aisle there? I don't see a lot of help from either side there. I don't think anybody really cares about the position a working man's in and. And they don't care that the CEOs are getting, you know, filthy rich on top of it. Now, I think you, I think you told me again that it was fairly recent that you voted for Democrats. I mean, you voted for Obama once or twice. I don't know what I had for lunch yesterday. I believe <laughs> I voted. I, I voted for him both times. Okay. Uh, and I, I guess you know, if there had been a Democrat running, I, I know you're. Very dissatisfied with Joe Biden, and honestly, a lot of Democrats were pretty dissatisfied with Joe Biden too. But uh, had there been, I mean, I don't know whether you get to get to see many of the two dozen Democrats running for president last year in Iowa. But is there anybody who was running that you would have been able to consider voting for against Donald Trump? Well, every one of them had some good things they were saying, but then I felt every one of them had some flaws. Either that I couldn't support or that I felt might make them unelectable or might be a, um, a hassle or a hazard, um, a hazard or a hassle um, in terms of having them as a candidate. Um, you know, we now have a vice president who couldn't even get past the primaries as far as getting significant voter attention. Yeah. Um... Well, yeah, there was a, <laughs> there were a lot of candidates that didn't make it past the first uh, caucus and first primary. 
uh, when you have a field that big. I thought the Republican field back in 2016 of 17 was big, and Democrats uh, outdid that this time around. So, um, you know, regarding, I, I know there's a, there's, I know there are some things we don't agree on. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I think we have a lot of common ground, uh, and I think part of it is uh, we don't see either party really addressing some of the core concerns that we have. Uh, money in politics, I, I believe you're also concerned about that. Yes, I, you know, I, I'm concerned that, you know, the Supreme Court have supported the, the lawsuit that gave corporations the right to donate to financial campaigns for office, which in essence amounts to vote buying. Uh, you know, if you get a couple of big corporations behind a candidate, you know, they're going to have a lot more ways to generate publicity and to influence elections. And, and I don't think that that corporations should be allowed to donate to candidacy. Yeah, and we see that we see that problem on both sides of the aisle. Yes. Yeah. Hey, so before we run out of time, Kim, uh, as you know, climate change is a major concern for me and for um, a, lo a lot of people and certainly for the scientific community. Do you, um, well, what do you see as the appropriate response uh, of, you know, both at the state level and the federal level to the uh, climate situation? Well, I definitely think it bears watching. I'm not sure that we can look at 200 years out of eons and say that, you know, because the temperature was, you know, five degrees different one day out of tens of thousands of days. I just don't know. I, I think we need to be open-minded, and I think we need to be looking at things. I mean, the biggest problem we've got is we're making too many people, and, and nobody addresses that issue. They talk about, um, you know, changing gas. They talk about solar power. They talk about wind power. They talk about all kinds of ideas. But ultimately, the fact is that we have a lot of people in a finite area, and that's probably the biggest issue that we need to deal with as a world civilization. And how, what, what do you think the world's population should be in order to retain, obtain a, a sustainable planet? Now, I don't know what it should be. All I know is, is I see land prices, I see construction trends, I see a lot of things that have changed so much over the last 50 years, um, you know, that it's very concerning. Um, we're seeing differences in land use policies. Um, I just read something this morning about somebody's trying to start some kind of a big eco thing in Montana, and they wanted to turn a lot of cattle farmers and ranchers off the ground and make this uh, Serengeti of North America or something like that, um, which I don't think is necessarily going to make utilizable ground. Um, you know, and I think we need to balance, you know, public needs and private needs. Um, one of the things that Trump did that I was very unhappy with was cutting back the area of Bears Ears Monument in Utah and cutting back the Grand Staircase National Monument, we've been down in that area many times. Yeah. And as the population increases, we need more places for right. our people to have outdoor exposure and outdoor activity, not less. Well, we agree on that as um, well. Yeah. So, 
Kim, uh, we're, I gotta, I gotta go to a break here. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us, and uh, thanks for being the first person to uh, <laughs> to agree to to have this conversation with me, <laughs> folks. We've been talking with uh, Kim Holding. She's a uh, She's a veterinarian. She operates the Story County Veterinary Clinic and has been doing that for 30-plus years, I believe. Well, I got out of school in 1976. I've jumped around a little bit for a few years, yeah. but I've been at Story County since 94. Yeah. Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, folks, when we come back, uh, we're going to catch up with uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry, infectious disease physician and on the front lines of uh, the coronavirus situation in Louisiana. We're going to talk about questions people have about whether the vaccine is safe. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. America's Heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our local business partners here in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a full-service grocery store that's locally owned and just west of downtown on Martin Luther King Boulevard. Gateway's Cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some distanced dining tables, and you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Located in downtown Des Moines, Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Tina Haas Findlay, and Nick Leo. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. You can catch many of the performances on Noche's live stream, and the owners have done a great job of making sure their setup works in protecting visitors, musicians, and staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, welcome back to the program. And with us for this conversation is uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry. He's an infectious disease physician at Access Health Louisiana in New Orleans. He's also the chief innovation officer there. And he um, also has a radio station that he helped start called WHIV in, in New Orleans. He also operates the COVID Noise Filter. It's a daily program. Uh, a podcast that's also available on the Pacifica Network and can be downloaded on all major podcast platforms. Uh, Dr. Derry, the um, COVID noise filter must be keeping you pl plenty busy these days. Oh, it, it certainly is. Uh, but we have a great team of writers and producers that help kind of move 
the program uh, forward. I appreciate you mentioning that. It is 10 minutes of high-yield uh, COVID-19 information based on social, economic, environmental, and racial justice. That's the lens that we view every story. So we've been very lucky to, to have it. We've been very successful with it. So thank you. And COVID has certainly hit um, low-income and minority communities uh, a lot harder than it has more affluent people. Yeah, that's that's as a result of centuries old structural discrimination that exists not only within the healthcare system, but within just the America's the American society system uh, uh, as well. And I'm sure those are conversations that you've had a, a number of times uh, on your radio program here. We, um, we have and there's always more to talk about, I'm afraid. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I think that you know, prior to COVID, just as on a, on a professional level, I used to have a very difficult time explaining to folks about how it is that structural discrimination, again, not only within the healthcare system, but within just the societal, the American societal system, disproportionately affects communities of color, specifically when it comes to healthcare. And most people had a very difficult time making that connection. I think after COVID, if you could say there is a very, very tiny little silver lining, and that is, uh, I think folks can make that connection mm. now and require a lot less lead-in for me to explain it. So that huh. means I can actually get to the core of my argument. Much <laughs> good, more right. rapidly. good, good. All right, a, a small silver lining in an otherwise dark cloud. But we are past... Uh, we're into the new year, and uh, there's a lot of expectation that this um, pandemic is going to be wrapped up before the end of 2021, maybe even by the middle of the year. And uh, some of that has to do with, a lot of that has to do with the uh, vaccine. But there's a lot of concern about the vaccine, a lot of concerns about safety, about the possibility of side effects, um, the rapidity with which it was developed. I mean, I know we're talking about several vaccines, but they all came to fruition very, very quickly. What do you? How do you address the concerns that people are raising about the coronavirus vaccine? Sure. So let's you know focus our comment. As you said, the there are many vaccines that are out there, and when you say the ones that came very rapidly, um, those are going to be the mRNA vaccines. Now, the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which uses uh, uh, another virus called an adenovirus, um, that uh, uh, is, had, was something that had been working on for a long, long time. That, that vaccine is going to be, and I mean years, they've been working on that, 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 that uh, vaccine. Okay. Uh, and that, that is going to be uh, likely distributed uh, internationally. So we'll focus on the mRNA vaccines here. Um, and the mRNA vaccines, and, and you know, if you think about uh, Moderna, the, the, the one of the manufacturers that makes it, if you look at the name Moderna, it actually has mRNA in the name, you know, the M for Moderna and then the RNA are the last three letters. Is that a, of, that's not a coincidence? I'm sure it was not a coincidence. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. So the Moderna vaccine actually had been uh, started to be worked on several years back. And in fact, it was a 29-year-old uh, uh, scientist who got a job at the NIH. She's 34 now. Yes, I read at, that story, yeah. Yes, at 29, she uh, uh, her name is Kizmikia Corbet. And Dr. Corbet was a very talented graduate student and was able to uh, basically walk to, you know, got a job with the NIH and started working on this brand new platform, which is uh, referred to as mRNA vaccines. So just a quick little, tiny, quick one or two sentence biology lesson. Now, previously, vaccines always worked 
by giving you a piece of the virus or a piece of the bacteria. Sometimes you would get, uh, uh, you know, the whole virus like smallpox. Uh, they, they refer to those as inactivated viral vaccines, but we haven't seen those in a while. Oh, really? I, you, I, I guess I'm behind the times. I assume that was still the standard uh, rationale behind you know, it. Okay. No, yeah, I mean, I'm going to just take back that comment. One of the new shingles vaccine is, is an inactivated virus, but a majority of the other vaccines mm, okay. all work by delivering what's referred to as an antigen. So it's a piece of the of the virus, right? So if, if I were to give you a car analogy, an antigen on a car may be like the tires, right? It's a piece that sticks out that your immune system can respond to. So using that car analogy for like a flu vaccine, when you get the vaccine, what you're getting is like a combination of a tire and a rear view mirror and maybe a bumper. It's the things that are on the outside that the immune system can see and respond to. Okay? Wow, I don't think I've ever heard, I've never heard a vaccine compared to an automobile. That's a first. <laughs> well, this is because we're going to go places here, okay? <laughs> so the way that the mRNA vaccine works is completely different. And in the past, it was those antigens that may have given some complications. But the mRNA vaccine, what mRNA is, it's basically it's a, a genetic code of instructions. Now, typically, the mRNA is basically a copy of our DNA. And the DNA, as we know, codes everything in the body. And when the DNA needs, when a cell needs something, it goes to the DNA to make it. Say, hey, we need to make this. And the way it gets made is by transferring something into mRNA, which then gets transferred into the protein of need. So here what they're doing is they're actually uh, injecting a small piece of code called mRNA, and that code codes for an antigen, a spike protein. That's the, the protein on the surface of the virus that gives it its shape. You know, the one that looks like a crown. We've all seen it. It's got the stick with the ball on top of it. So your body's actually instructed to make that spike protein using the ingredients inside your cell. So it's almost like an organic thing, right? Like the, your cells are, are instructed how to produce that protein, and then that protein gets pushed out of the cells into the bloodstream. And then once it gets into the bloodstream, the immune system recognizes it, and then at that point you have an immune response. So there's two wow, things that's, to this that's vaccine. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> right. Your body's producing the antigen, and then it goes on to produce immunity, and that's what makes these vaccines so special. And what they've seen, and we're starting to see more and more data surface now that there were very, very little um, in the form of serious or severe adverse effects. So uh, we should expect that you're going to probably get a sore arm uh, after the vaccine uh, is delivered. You're like, like, with, should... like with a tetanus shot. Like with a tetanus shot. Probably not as sore as with a tetanus shot. Um, but like more like people explain it is more like an influenza vaccine. Hmm. You'll feel a little bit of a sore arm. You may feel a little under the weather the next day. That just means that your immune system is working. Uh, just like if you were to vaccinate your children with a few vaccines and you notice the next day they're a little grumpy and you give them a little ibuprofen or Tylenol, that grumpiness that that children feel or even I feel after I get my flu shot 
is just your immune system working. And when your immune system is turned on, it just happens to make you feel a little crummy because the chemicals that are used just aren't, aren't very pleasant uh, to, the, to the body in terms of how it feels. But that's all part of the normal process. Now, because these vaccines are, um, they must be delivered in two doses, and that's also mm. a very important point as well. And depending on which one you get, the Pfizer is given within 21 days, doses, and then the Moderna vaccine is given within uh, four weeks. Given to where you guys live, um, I would predict initially that you guys are going to probably have the Moderna vaccine. That's the vaccine that doesn't need to be kept as cold. Uh, and so it, it, there's a little bit of wiggle room in terms of delivery, whereas city centers are going to be getting the Pfizer vaccine. And I heard that like, not, like a 90, negative 94 degrees is what I heard has to be kept at? Minus 70 Celsius. Minus 70. Yeah. Minus 70 Celsius. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're very cold. So you need to get specialized. Uh, yeah. Refri- your freezer isn't going to take no, care of this no. one, right? Well, we, we, we might get a few days in Iowa that are cold enough you can leave it outside. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, true that. <laughs> the, um, so that's the way the, the, the distribution is going to work. Um, you know, more rural or less populated areas, the Moderna vaccine, more densely populated areas, the Pfizer vaccine. This way, when they open that vaccine bottle, um, they can vaccinate as many people as possible. Uh, as opposed to the Moderna, they can vaccinate one or two here. They can put it back in the refrigerator and it will hold for 30 mm. days. So one more question uh, before we run out of time. The White House has been rushing to put together this um, this uh, public education campaign. It's like a $250 million expense. And this is, of course, under the Trump administration, which is interesting. Um, but presumably the Biden administration will continue the public education campaign. But is there going to be any... What, what does that transfer look like? And is that going to be confusing? Uh, right. I, I, it actually is not. It's actually, it looks like that they're probably coordinating with one another. Wow. And that's probably the doctors that are on the teams that are doing this. The Biden um, uh, coronavirus uh, team that he has, the COVID team, uh, is really populated with some excellent, excellent leaders. Uh, those uh, infectious disease doctors, epidemiologists, these are the folks that are very, very well known and they're trusted names within the infectious diseases and public health uh, arenas. They've already shown their work to be very, very positive. So the team that, that uh, President-elect Biden has put together is really stellar. So it really is nice to see that the two teams are working together because uh, there will be a handoff uh, of, of that uh, that. Uh, uh, that plan that they're trying to educate uh, uh, Americans about how uh, uh, how effective the vaccines are, how safe the vaccines are, uh, and really encouraging people to be vaccinated. All right. Well, um, Dr. Derry, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us. I know you are crazy busy, and um, your your input is uh, always appreciated, especially at this um, very difficult time. So, um, yeah, good luck with your work. Uh, folks, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Mike Allen Derry. He's, again, an infectious disease physician at Access Health of Louisiana, in uh, Access Health Louisiana in New Orleans. And uh, we will be back in just a minute, folks. Uh, stick around. We'll got more conversation coming at you here shortly on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. 
Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Welcome to 2021. I'm so glad 2020 is done. Hey, support for this program, and we are grateful for those who do support it, comes from Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk, that's spelled H-O-Q, is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Check out hawktable.com. And thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so uh, earlier, about a year ago, last year, uh, a guy showed up at the uh, State House in Idaho, his name was uh, James Taylor, and I'm almost regretting that his name was James Taylor because that's my favorite musician. And this guy's message was horrible. He was from the Heartland Institute. And if you're not familiar with the Heartland Institute, it's funded by the climate denier universe, the, the wealthy side of that. Of course, Charles Koch, Microsoft, General Motors, Philip Morris, all those good guys, Pfizer. Um, <laughs> a lot of people that don't like anything progressive. Um, and so... This guy shows up and he says uh, that um, lawmakers uh, should know that rising temperatures, global warming, is actually going to help Idaho and has already increased crop production. Well, you know, Idaho is a very Republican state. There are 56 uh, Republicans in the, uh, in the state house and 14 Democrats. Uh, in the Senate, it's 28 to 7. But... Um, <laughs> the uh, minority leader, Ilana Rubel, she spoke up and said, I noted your report didn't really mention fires or snowpack, but one of the things that we have heard from Idaho scientists in recent years was that due to climate change, we've seen a 100% increase in wildfires, and wildfire seasons have lengthened by 47 days. But I wonder if any of that information would at all impact your conclusion that climate change has had no adverse effects on Idaho. End of quote. Boy, is she good. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I want to meet that minority leader. I was very impressed with that. She wasted um, no time and uh, pulled no punches. And uh, the one thing I would say is, you know, she, she says that he, he indicated that climate change has had no adverse effects on Idaho. What he said was actually worse. He said climate change has been good for Idaho. He's trying to argue that um, that the that increased rainfall is meaning that uh, 
That, that's why the, the carbon in the atmosphere, more, more rainfall, better crop yields. And so um, I want to credit KTVB TV7 in Boise, who um, wrote this story that I'm looking at and did some digging. They actually went to a Boise State University professor, uh, Dr. Uh, Alejandro Flores, and uh, he's the Associate Professor of Geosciences. And they asked him, uh, is this true? And he said, no. <laughs> no, what the Heritage Foundation guy told you is not true. Uh, the increases in, this is a quote, the increases in crop yields we've seen are largely due to technological innovations in the ag sector. Okay, so, you know, anymore, the, 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 the so-called scientists and in this case, attorneys, this guy was an attorney, who are trying to defend increased oil and gas exploration and trying to paint climate as a non-event, it, it's just astounding to me the extent they're willing to go to. So apparently there were a couple GOP lawmakers who said they found Taylor's uh, information helpful and interesting. Uh, they may have just been being polite. I, I don't know. I have a hard time anybody... I mean, because I mean, here's the other thing. It, it, the guy was asked, Taylor was asked if he had spoken to anybody in Idaho in advance of, uh, of this conversation. Uh, and actually, this is uh, Representative Rob Mason. He's also a Democrat, one of the few Democrats in Idaho, uh, in the uh, State House. Um, he, um, this is also quoted from the KTVB TV7 story. Mason asks Taylor, quote, did you have a chance to work with any of our Idaho scientists, industry folks in Idaho, stakeholders, state departments, or, you know, anyone else, any Idaho-based stakeholders for this report? And if so, could you share who helped provide input, who helped provide information on that? And guess what? James Taylor, again, not the good James Taylor, whose music I love. James Taylor, the attorney representing the Heartland Institute, admitted he had not spoken to anyone in Idaho. <laughs> so here he is coming in to the state house saying, climate change is good for you all. Look at all your crop yields. And immediately, of course, challenged by two Democratic lawmakers. Maybe he was challenged by a Republican as well. I don't know. That's not in the story. But also challenged by a professor of geosciences at Boise State University saying, no, the crop yields are for other reasons. The biggest concern is um, you've, got, you've got rapid warming in the mountains. Uh, you've got lower snowpack. The snowpack is a big problem in a lot of mountain states. And uh, as the uh, report on this TV station points out, more than 90% of peer-reviewed studies and the scientists that research them say climate change is a human-caused problem, and the mainstream scientific community almost entirely agree that burning coal, oil, and gas is causing dangerous warming. So good for this TV station. Good for them for doing their homework. Good for them for calling out James Taylor for presenting misinformation. And good for those Democratic lawmakers in a very Republican world for politely and yet very intelligently calling out this guy's testimony. Anyway, folks, uh, we'll be back in a minute with more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm joining us next. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, 
Grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Back to the Fallon Forum, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland. Uh, thanks to our sponsors and business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's my grocery store, and it's open seven days a week. The cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper, and you can get breakfast at the cafe on the weekends. Check it out, folks. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Hey, Kathy Burns is with us, folks, for the final segment of our program today, and uh, I believe we are going to be discussing something a little bit tangential to the food conversation that we usually focus on, mm -hmm. and that is the uh, National Screen-Free Week, which used to be, back in the day, National Turn-Off-Your-Television Week. Um, <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, we don't have a TV, and, and, and we're fine with that. Um, I... I understand you have some history with this concept. And yes, we are going to bring this around to the food idea. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll catch that I do. That it's a, you know, and, and in, the, in, the, in the category of bipartisan cooperation back in 1996, uh, myself uh, and, and, and Chuck Hurley. Chuck Hurley was a, he's, he's, he's noted as a very uh, socially conservative Republican, former lawmaker, former member of the Iowa Board of Parole, uh, currently, I think the president of the Iowa Family Leader. Well, we agreed on we we found we agreed on a bunch of things. One of them was that uh, people watch too much TV, and uh, there was a, a Nielsen survey that came out back then that showed that. What year was this? 1996. 96. The average American was watching uh, four hours of television each day, and so we went around the chamber and said, "Well, how many how many other people can we get to sign a resolution saying that hey?" We ought to promote, the Iowa legislature ought to promote National Turn Off Your TV Week. And um, we got 63 people to sign on. It was very bipartisan. Again, this was the Republican, Republican chamber. Actually, it was pretty overwhelmingly Republican at the time. But uh, I was the lead sponsor, which was unusual that a Democrat would be a lead sponsor on something. And then we, um, we passed the, uh, it was a really good resolution. It talked about um, that... Uh, that uh, the television viewers are constantly exposed to a barrage of messages which depict and glorify violence, sexual license, materialism, family alienation, suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, racism, and sexism. And again, not to say that everything on TV is bad. There's a lot of good right. stuff on there. Some of it's fun. Some of it's educational. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot of that on there, too. A lot of stuff that... You know, and I remember back then noticing, too, that uh, the average American watched about 20,000 TV commercials a year. That's crazy, Ooh. you know? So what was really cool was that uh, there, there's a huge paragraph of all the different organizations that had co-sponsored the, um, the, uh, 
the uh, the national turn off your TV week, and it was I mean the. The, uh, the National Association of Ele- Elementary School Principals, the American mm-hmm. Psychiatric Society, the AMA, um, the National Association for Sport and Physical Education, uh, the American Library Association, uh-huh. Student Environmental Action Coalition. It was a really diverse group of sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, I mean, again, this, this particular resolution was just Iowa legislators sponsoring it. But nationally, these are some of the organizations that got behind it because... It was seen as a problem, and it's still a problem. Well, and the really cool thing about it was that we got um, after we passed it, it was sent to all schools in the in the in state, elementary, middle, high school, and colleges as well. So anyway, small thing. Nice, good job. <laughs> well, that was 1996. Yeah, and it, the statistic I found from 2017 is that according to Nielsen, um, consumers were watching even more TV. Per week, um, 238 minutes daily, and uh, that says uh, that's blah, 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 five, something like almost five hours, five hours of TV. And does that include your iPhone? Your that's TV. Computer? That's well, if you watch it on on your computer, but it's a TV show, so mm. it's television programming. I just don't know how people find the time. <laughs> we don't have a TV, and we're not advocating everybody get rid of their TV, really, but uh, you can do without it. I think the benefit of something like uh, National No TV Week or whatever, screen-free week, is to show you that there are other things to do with your time. And we'd like to suggest some things to do with your time besides watch TV. Um well, the, the advantages. First of all, you save money. How much? I don't even know what cable cost either. is that even the, or Netflix. I don't even know what these things are or yeah. do anymore. I've never had cable. Um, never missed it. <laughs> I don't know what the monthly bill is for that. Don't know. Netflix yeah. things like that. Um, there's a lot that you can. There's a lot of other stuff you can spend money on. Um, you know when you walk into somebody's house in the living room and the, the focal point of the living room is the television set. Think about it. If you don't have a TV, you don't need to worry about decorating your whole room right. around the a television. Focal point, the focal point of our living room is the sleeping cat. It, it is. Well, today it is. And yeah. our rocking chairs. We're sounding like we're getting <laughs> Rocking <aging>. chairs. <laughs> um, but, you know, more people are n- choosing not to have the TV in their living room. They might have it in a den or a, a separate space, maybe an office space. But a lot of people are choosing now just to not have that be the focal point of the main family area in their house. Um, uh, we joked that when we, when we had people over for dinner, and we did have people over for dinner in 2020, we would sit outside in an appropriately distanced, distanced uh, environment. Uh, and and just behind uh, where our, our guests, the, our, our, the view our guests had was at our chicken coop. And, of course, we're having dinner, and usually it's getting dusk, uh, and then that's the best time to be watching the chickens. The chickens are a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would call it our post-dinner entertainment, uh, what would you call it, our, our floor show? or The floor show. Uh, the floor dinner show. and a floor show. <laughs> dinner and a floor show. And the, yeah, the chickens, uh, one thing that was fun was to throw them scraps, and they, and they get... Pretty crazy running excited. after scraps, fighting over scraps. Maybe it's not. It's not it's, a it's, mean no, fighting. It's, it's not of, like cockfighting or anything. No, no, gosh. No, it's just it's, like each, they, each, they pull it from each they other. They pull it from each other. They do what chickens do. And then the funnest part is as they're starting to settle in for the night, just the, the way they, you know, 
kind of compete for various roost options. And, mm-hmm. and so our guests get to see this. And we say, you see, we, we, we don't need a TV. We have this chicken coop here that keeps us as entertained as you could possibly want to be. Sometimes <laughs> I'll just go out and watch the chickens just to relax, kind of meditative. Um, they're very interesting. Um, uh, another thing you can do in, in addition to watching your chickens, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of the solutions we recommend have to do with chickens. Um, but another thing you can do, connect with your neighbors, um, of course, until the pandemic is over in a socially safe way. But say hi to your neighbors. If you don't know them, if it, it, it can be embarrassing. If you've lived next to someone for three years and you've never said hello, do it this year. That would be great. Um, it's can, possible you have a neighbor you don't like or who doesn't like you. I think uh, in the nine years I've lived here, I've had two of those. <laughs> we have wonderful neighbors. Yeah, which no, we, uh, which we is pretty good. Out of the hundreds and hundreds of neighbors we have, to have only two that didn't work out, you know, that's, that's not so bad. Well, anyway. another great thing to do, and a lot of people are doing more of this uh, since the pandemic, making homemade meals. Yeah. I don't know how many people I saw... Um, after we started isolating, suddenly say, I'm learning how to bake bread. I'm learning how to bake a pie. But I'm learning how to puff turnips. That's right. We had a program a while ago on the wonderful world of turnips, and turnip puff has that's changed right. our life. That's right. But, um, you know, just, just learning how to slow down and enjoy the process of making meals. And we said it would get around to food, gardening. Mm. With the work that we have, which is a joy, mm-hmm. making food grow, um, turning our yard into dinner, i that's where I don't know how we'd have time for TV. Yes, we watch some YouTube videos sometimes. We'll turn on Trevor Noah and see what's happening. But mm. um, I just don't know when we would have time to come in the house and turn on a TV and just sit down in front of it. Mm. That would be weird. Well, for some people, uh, the TV is background noise. And I, you know, I understand if you're living by yourself and it's too quiet and you don't have any company, maybe that's your source of companionship. I get that. That's unfortunate. Um, that's uh, probably a bigger conversation about isolation mm. <laughs> and how we, uh, how, we, how we live in this world today and how we design our communities. Mm-hmm. But uh, I get that. But, um, you know, in so many cases, it's background noise, but it, it remains in the foreground, of course, when I remember when I would go door to door as a candidate or as a state lawmaker and I'd knock on a door and they'd invite me in and I'd sit down and I, I, I was always trying to be very accommodating. Uh, but if they were trying to talk to me about something and the TV was going, I would say, look, can you just turn the TV off while we talk? Because I, I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so not used to having TV on that it, it absolutely, it totally distracts me. I I'm can't, kind of a prude about that. I, well, I, can't, I can't focus on the conversation. Mm-hmm. What, they, what they're saying to me is important. Mm-hmm. I just have to say, look, i got to be honest with you. I can't tune in on, to what you're saying when, that, when the TV is on. Have you noticed when we've had, had the need <clears throat> to fly somewhere, and that is rare, you sit in an airport and they always have the TV on. And, and it's funny when you don't watch it, your eyes just draw to it. It's like these moving pictures and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's important just not to let that control your life. Yep. You know, yeah. Just, um, yeah we, did, we didn't have a TV uh, until my son turned 10. Mm-hmm. And that, then it was a black and white TV. Uh, I remember he would, when he would run into a TV at a, at a store or at a neighbor's house, he was mesmerized. He just plopped Ooh, in just, front I mean, just, just it was just, it was mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that's something we should talk about, too. We, we should get a psychologist on this board to discuss mm-hmm. that with us. That'd be but not today, because we're out of time. <laughs> hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us, and thanks to our other guest today, uh, Dr. Kim Holding, 
and Dr. Mark Allen Derry. Thanks to the Fallon Forum production squad of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. And thanks to you, our audience, for taking time to uh, share this uh, conversation with us. Um, again, the Fallon Forum can be heard as a podcast and on numerous radio stations in Iowa and around the country. Also, this segment is on our Facebook page, and please subscribe. Uh, please keep in touch with us. Share your ideas about programming. We'll be back next week with more good conversation on the Fallon Forum.